Good morning, everyone. So in January, I had the wonderful opportunity to travel to India with a group from my college. I didn't know many people who were going with me, and one of my favorite parts of the trip was getting to know a girl I roomed with for half of our stay. Our first night in India, as we were trying to stay up all night to defeat jet lag, we started to get to know each other. However, the conversation had kind of stalled since it was around five in the morning, who knows, who knows what time it was in America, what we were used to, and we knew we had to stay awake for at least the next 14 hours. So all of a sudden, she sighs and says, well, I should probably go take care of my toe. Then she pulls out a small bag from her luggage, lifts her foot up in a desk in our room, takes off her shoe, and reveals a bandaged foot. Without saying anything else, no explanation, she uh, starts to put some sort of salve on her toe, starts to clean it, and then wraps it back up. Seeing an opening in the conversation, I ask her, hey, what happened to your foot? Uh, she looks at me, and she says slowly, okay, so what you need to know is that I'm like the most stubborn person on the planet. And tentatively, I respond, uh, okay, because what do you say to that when you don't really know someone? And then she goes on to tell me the story. So I got this ingrown toenail a while ago, and I was like, eh, it'll just go away. But it didn't. And it got really worse, uh, but I didn't really want to go to the doctor, so I just stuck it out. And then it got progressively worse and worse, and it got to the point where I couldn't really walk on it, but I still didn't want to go to the doctor, so I just told myself I'd take care of it when we got back from India. But then my mom saw it, and she made me go to the doctor. So I went yesterday, like the day before we left on an overseas trip for a month. <laughs> Turns out it was really infected, and the doctor told me that if I had waited to get it treated until after this trip, I would have had to amputate my toe. And she said this all totally casually, like it wasn't a big deal, all while cleaning her toe and wrapping it back up. And I had to agree with the, her first statement. She very well may be the most stubborn person on the planet. And she spent the rest of the trip proving that to us as well. <laughs> so now I'm asking you guys, how stubborn are you? Truly, take a moment to think about it. How stubborn are you? How sure of yourself are you? How sure of your beliefs are you? Are you so stubborn, so bent on being right, that it would take a doctor looking you in the eye and saying, if you don't admit that you're wrong, you're going to lose a body part for you to re-examine your certainty. Sometimes we can be exactly that stubborn. Maybe not always with health concerns and ingrown toenails, but we're stubborn in other ways. We have our beliefs, our worldview, and we hold them in a tightened fist, unwilling to release our grip, no matter what new information or uh, we learn or who we disagree with. Like my roommate in India, we sometimes wear this stubbornness as a badge of honor. We pride ourselves on being sure of ourselves, on knowing the right thing and not changing our beliefs even when society goes against what we think. We pat ourselves on the back for knowing the truth, unable to believe that anyone else could possibly be right. We see stubborn people like this on the pages of Acts 14, 
In this chapter, Paul and Barnabas traveled to the cities of Lyconium and Lystra with the intent of preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. At the beginning of this chapter, they arrive at Iconium and begin preaching at the Jewish synagogue. Let's read the first seven verses again. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding countries where they continued to preach the gospel. So at first, Paul and Barnabas are doing well. They're preaching at the Jewish synagogue and many people believe the gospel. But almost immediately, things turn sour. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the apostles. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on in the minds of the Jews in Iconium, but I'm guessing their anger stemmed from their belief in the Jewish faith. And when you think about it, it's, understand, it's understandable why they would have trouble believing Paul and Barnabas. I mean, believing them, believing the gospel, would change their entire worldview. They would have to reconcile with a new idea of God that they weren't used to. It would be easier for them to say no, to continue believing, what they always had, and to keep their God in a nice tidy box where they didn't have to work too hard at understanding him. So they refused to believe, and their insistence and stubbornness that Paul and Barnabas were wrong caused them to stir up other Gentiles so that more people would demonize and dehumanize the people they disagreed with. In the words of the theologian Willie James Jennings, the Jewish people are resistant because they view these apostles as frightening insurgents who are drawing the people of God into sinking sand. In their minds, Paul and Barnabas are preaching blasphemous things, and the Jews truly believe that they are doing the right and the godly thing by eliminating people who are, in their eyes, turning people away from God's truth. I think it would be very easy for us to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the Jews in Iconium. I think we can all resonate with the temptation to shut out new ideas because they go against what we have always held to be true. Simply because it's easier not to change your mind. It's easier to be right. It's easier to villainize the people who disagree with you instead of recognizing that they might not be entirely wrong. It's easier to condemn others than it is to reconcile that our idea of God might not be entirely accurate. But you know what? They were wrong. The Jews in Iconium who refused to believe, who stirred up controversy in their city, who planned to murder people for disagreeing with them, were wrong. They didn't have the right image of God, even though they attempted to kill people because they were so convinced that they did. They were stubborn, they were arrogant, they were scared, and they were wrong. Their stubbornness, their insistence that they were right, blinded them to the true message, the true image of God, the true fulfillment of everything they believed. But they missed it. They demonized it. They wanted to kill it. 
because it didn't fit into their image of God that they created for themselves. In her book, Searching for Sunday, the theologian Rachel Held Evans remarked that it seems those most likely to miss God's work in the world are those most convinced that they know exactly what to look for, the ones who expect God to play by their rules. So let me ask you again, how stubborn are you? Are you so convinced that you are right? Are you so convinced that you know exactly how God will present himself to you that you would risk missing God if he showed up in your town? How stubborn are you? Continuing on in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas journey to the town of Lystra to continue spreading the gospel. They encounter a man there who was born lame. In verse 9, it says that this man listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Whereas the Jews in Iconium refused to open their eyes and recognize the truth of the gospel, the man in Lystra listened to Paul, and Paul looked directly at him. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Jennings calls this look a dance of mutual recognition. Paul looks at this man and sees in him the faith he has to be healed. And this man sees in Paul the truth of the gospel and the spirit of God. Unlike the Jews in Iconium, this man was not so blinded by his stubbornness that he could not recognize the truth in other people. And he was healed because of it. But then this beautiful healing scene, this sacred act of the Spirit, was seen by the people in Lystra and twisted into something else. In Acts 14.11, it is said that when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. While the lame man in the spirit uh, saw the spirit in Paul and Barnabas, the people of Lystra saw this event through their own worldview and preconceived ideas of what God was. Since they were a community who worshipped more than one god, they immediately assumed that Paul and Barnabas had gotten this power from one of their numerous gods. They saw this miracle, and they rejoiced in it, but their wrong image of God prevented them from seeing the truth in it. Their minds and their hearts weren't open to the spirit, weren't open to correction, so they took this act of God and compressed it to fit what they already believed to be true. How often do we do this? How often do we compress events and beliefs and ideas into a box that we already have made up? How often do we shape something to fit our idea of God instead of letting the true God shape our ideas and beliefs and experiences? Okay, I just spent the last 10 minutes telling you to be less stubborn and accept the fact that you can be wrong about things. Now don't let this go to your head, but I will now admit that sometimes you can be right about things. Sometimes you are the Paul and Barnabas of this story, and you are talking to people who are closed-minded and stubborn and unable to see God's truth. What do we do when we're in this situation? I think that the following story in Acts 14 gives us a pretty good example. So this is verses 14 through 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness in giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So when Paul and Barnabas find out that the people of Lystra are attributing this miracle to their gods, and even calling Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes, they do not hesitate to correct them. They do not hesitate to call them out and confront them on their ignorant view of God. Paul knows that the people of Lystra are wrong and that they have the wrong image of God. He is steadfast and unwavering in his conviction that what they are doing and who they are worshiping and how they have interpreted this miracle is wrong. But he is also understanding. He knows that these people don't have the same upbringing as him. They weren't raised as Jews. It's probably hard for them to imagine a God without bringing their own preconceived ideas of their numerous gods into it. He gets that. He understands that these people are on a learning curve, so he doesn't condemn them for messing up or for getting it wrong. But he doesn't tell them that it's okay, that because of their ignorance, they're allowed to keep on doing what they're doing. No, he's understanding of why they messed up, but he's also very straightforward with them. They have to change. They have to do better. He's saying, I get why you thought this was okay and your lives aren't over because of it, but you have to know that this is wrong and you have to know why it's wrong and now you have to change it. So when we critique people who are in the wrong, do we do it this way? Are we understanding with them or do we automatically assume that we're better than them? Are we firm with them or do we let them get away with things because it's uncomfortable to confront our friends? Are we straightforward with them or do we send them mixed signals? In her book, Searching for Sunday, Rachel Held Evans wrote, imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. It's hard to know how to confront people who are sinning against God, but the book of Acts is full of examples of the Spirit guiding the apostles' words, and I believe that we can ask the Spirit to do the same for us. With the Spirit's help, we can tell one another the truth and make one another uncomfortable, but still find a safe haven in one another's company. The other thing that Paul and Barnabas did right is that they stay put. Both in this story and earlier in Iconium, the apostles don't leave when people get mad at them. Instead, they make a point to stay longer and make sure that people are hearing the truth. And even though, even though that most certainly means that their lives are being put at risk. When you know the truth, you have to be prepared to be persecuted for it. You have to be prepared for people to disagree with you and get angry with you because that's what you signed up for as a follower of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas didn't shy away and let the people spewing hate run the narrative. They stood their ground and they preached the truth until the Spirit led them away. And twice in this chapter, they almost die because of it. But even if we are in the right and we have the Spirit guiding our words and we stick it out and don't leave at the first sight of conflict, it doesn't mean that things will always end the way that we think they should or we expect them to. So here's how the conflict in Lystra ends. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby.
The people of Iconium, which is the city that Paul and Barnabas were in at the beginning of this chapter, came to Lystra and turned the tide against the disciples. Their stubborn insistence against the gospel not only resulted in them plotting the murder of the apostles when they were in Iconium, but in an actual murder attempt in the next town over. They were so convinced that Paul and Barnabas were wrong, that they were a threat to their comfortable way of life, that they sought them out and tried to kill them. I don't want that to be us. I don't want us to be so stubborn that we resort to violence and manipulation to get our point across. I don't want us to be so stubborn that we hurt the people who disagree with us. I don't want us to be so stubborn that we miss the message of God, miss the message that God sent someone to give us. So as my closing, I would like to offer some words of advice to steer us clear of being the next Iconium or Lystra. First, accept the fact that you might not know everything. In her first memoir, Rachel Held Evans wrote, My interpretation can only be as inerrant as I am, and that's good to keep in mind. This is a great way to view our faith and our beliefs. We are not God. We are not even close to being inerrant. So how can we expect our interpretation of the Bible to be correct 100% of the time? Acknowledge the fact that you can't always be right and make your peace with that. Second, examine your beliefs. Figure out why you believe them. Is it because it's backed up by scripture, by tradition, by your experiences, by reason, all four? Or is it because like your parents or your church or your spouse or your friend or your professor told you that this was right and it sounded right and you didn't have any reason not to believe them, so why not? Before you start attacking someone for introducing you to a new idea, you should take a step back and figure out why you feel so defensive about it. Why are you reacting so strongly, trying to defend your way of thinking so harshly? What is that emotion grounded in? And if you examine your beliefs and you are convinced that they are the truth, that's great. But, and you should stand firm in your beliefs, like Paul and Barnabas did. But maybe recognize that no belief is worth killing or dehumanizing or de demonizing someone over. Jesus never did this to the people who disagreed with him or challenged him, and I don't think the Spirit would ever prompt you to do this. Third, keep in mind that even if you disagree with someone, they can still have a place in the kingdom of God. As an example, look at how many denominations there are in the Christian faith. It's kind of insane when you think about it. Christians had so many different interpretations of God that one group was just not enough. Some people think that this is disheartening. Some look at it as encouraging. That's up for you to decide. But what we should try to do is understand that our brothers and sisters in Christ have a place in the kingdom and they have things to teach us, even if we disagree on some theological points. At the risk of quoting Rachel Held Evans one too many times, she offers this imagery that I think is absolutely beautiful and helpful to illustrate this point. Jesus said his father's house had many rooms. In this metaphor, I like to imagine the Presbyterians hanging out in the library, the Baptists running around the kitchen, the Anglicans setting the table, the Anabaptists watch, washing feet in, with the hose in the backyard, the Lutherans making liturgy for the laundry, the Methodists sticking the fire in the hearth, the Catholics, Catholics keeping the family history, and the Pentecostals throwing open all the windows and doors to let more people in. And then, when discussing how we should honor our differences, she remarks, we're a family after all, and so we fight like one. We honor each other, 
we eat with each other, but we're not afraid to voice our opinions and let one another know that we think they're wrong or right. And we all come together in the end, just like a family. So keep this in mind when you're disagreeing with someone. And finally, pray for a mind that is open to God's spirit. In this sermon series, we've been looking at how the spirit moved in the book of Acts. I think by now we should know that our lives look completely different and much more like Christ when we open ourselves up to the spirit. If we pray for a mind that is open to the spirit, that is open for God's direction, I think we will find ourselves more able to admit that we aren't always as right as we think we are and much less defensive about being corrected. And the spirit will help us discern which beliefs to hold with a clenched fist and which to hold a little looser. And our shining beacon of hope that this transformation is possible is the Apostle Paul himself. If this same story had taken place at the beginning of Acts, Paul wouldn't have been with Barnabas. No, he would have been with the Jews in Iconium, convinced that the gospel of Jesus was false and ready to stone these apostles. He was close-minded and stubborn, unable to see how his image of God was wrong, that it was not enough. When he stopped resisting the Spirit, when he allowed the Spirit to show him how wrong he was, his life changed drastically. And now here he is on the other end, risking his life for the very thing he once killed people over. Willie James Jennings remarked that there is, of course, a world of difference between the Saul who saw stones hit the body of Stephen and this Paul who re whose body received stone blows. It is the difference of a world turned upside down by a God who always surprises us with a new word that can change us. I hope that we will risk to have our world turned upside down by this God as well. And now I'll end with a prayer written by Janet Morley. So pray with me. Spirit of God, you are the breath of creation, the wind of change that blows through our lives, opening up new dreams and new hopes, new life in Jesus Christ. Forgive our closed minds which barricade themselves against new ideas, preferring the past to what you might want to do through us tomorrow. Forgive our closed eyes which fail to see the needs of your world, blind to the opportunities of service and love. Forgive our closed hands which clutch our gifts and our wealth for our use alone. Forgive our closed hearts which limit our affection to ourselves and our own. Spirit of new life, forgive and break down the prison walls of our selfishness that we might be open to your love and open for the service of the world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.